And uh, please turn, if you would, in your copy of God's Word to Romans 14. We continue our rather didactic series on uh, biblical liberty. And we build where, off of where we left off last time. So uh, if you don't have a firm footing on things indifferent, uh, you may want to review that sermon from last week as we will tend to build rather than uh, redo ground that we've already covered. I'll give you a basic definition again just to remind us of these things. But uh, these things all build on each other uh, after coming through liberty of conscience as well as uh, things indifferent. Now we come to the doctrine of the weaker brother. So Romans 14, I'll also read the first three verses of chapter 15, just for context's sake. We're not going to exegete this entire text, but we're going to read it so that we may have the understanding of the context. Let us hear God's word. Him that is weak in the faith, receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not. And let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth. Uh, eateth not judge him that eateth, for God hath received him. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. One man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regardeth the day regardeth unto the Lord. And he that regardeth not the day to the Lord, he doth not regard it. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord, for he giveth God thanks. And he that eateth not to the Lord, he eateth not, and giveth God thanks. For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. And whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and living. But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set at naught thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Let us not therefore judge one another any more, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. Let not then your good be evil spoken of. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. For he that in these things serveth Christ is acceptable to God and approved of men. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify another. For meat destroy not the work of God. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for that man who eateth with offense. It is good neither to eat flesh, nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth, or is offended, or is made weak. Hast thou faith? Have it to thyself before God. Happy is he that condemneth not himself in that thing which he alloweth. 
And he that doubteth is damned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. For even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on me. Amen. May God bless his word to us. Let us pray briefly for the preaching. Oh, gracious God, our Father, what a thing it is to be reminded of Christ once again that he pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on me. And so, Lord, we come to hear a word from Christ who has served us so excellently and so well. We pray that the minister would preach Christ's words truly, as he would have the minister preach, having the minister diminish so that Jesus may increase and that we may have an increase of love one for another, bearing with one another in each other's infirmities. May the Spirit blow then on this assembly through the preaching of the word. And we pray, Father, then to these ends, that the things which I speak, that they would not be in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth. Bless us with fulfilling that promise, we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the church of Jesus Christ contains those that are called the weaker brethren. Brethren who are not fully informed on the doctrine of things indifferent, on the doctrine of Christian liberty that we have considered in these last couple of sermons. And so such brethren have conscientious scruples when it comes to things indifferent. They think that a matter indifferent may actually be sinful for them to partake of, not according to those three rules that we considered, the rules of piety and uh, charity and purity from last sermon, but simply thinking that to partake of a thing indifferent would be sin in of itself. And so these are considered the weaker brethren. And the question really is that comes in this text, how should those of us that the apostle calls strong in chapter 15, how are we to bear with the infirmities of the weak? How are we to bear with these brethren in the church? Because they are here, they exist. There may be some amongst us today, but they're certainly in the church uh, at large. How do we use our knowledge of Christian liberty that we considered last time in the edification and the uh, love that we are to show these weaker brethren. And that's really the question here. And there's something quite remarkable that we find in the Bible. You know, as we start to gain knowledge on things, maybe, you know, you're sitting here, it's like, oh, I know how to define the word adiaphora. I've gained that kind of knowledge. And we get knowledge in these sort of secondary uh, matters. And what sometimes happens is we forget our knowledge of fundamental law of the church. Uh, the law of charity, for instance, right? There's a funny thing that we can crowd out the knowledge of fundamental things, the weightier matters of the law, as we start to discover all the counsel of God, which is our duty, by the way. We are to do that. We are to have knowledge of these things. That is our duty before God. But yet sometimes we find because of our flesh, it crowds out fundamentals that we are to never let go of. And so, here, you remember fundamental law in this text. What did Christ say when it comes to the brethren? Love one another as I have loved you. Right, this is fundamental, non-negotiable law of Christ to the church. 
And we forget that as we gain knowledge of Christian liberty, things adiaphora, things indifferent. And as we, we do so, we start to tear down and we start to despise brethren who have not the knowledge that we have in these matters. And when we see they don't have this knowledge and they are practicing things or not practicing things that they should be at liberty one way or another to do or not to do, we start to despise them. And the apostle says, that ought not be, brethren. That ought not be. And so I will maybe put this before you as we consider the doctrine of the, of the weaker brother. It is really the intersection and interaction of the doctrine of Christian charity met with Christian liberty. It's the intersection of the doctrine of Christian charity, love for the brethren, along with our knowledge of Christian liberty. And that's a very helpful way for you to think about it, how these things interact. Because forbearance and long-suffering with brethren and dying to our own self and our own liberties and things indifferent is fundamental law of the church. It is fundamental law of Jesus Christ. And Christ has... Uh, put that over our liberty concerning things indifferent. Here's the point, right? We are free to use and not use things indifferent. That's what makes them indifferent after all, right? You are free. You can, uh, you know, we talked about something like alcohol, you know, outside of the sacrament. You are free to go the rest of your life without partaking of alcohol and it doesn't commend you to God or not commend you to God. That's what makes it indifferent. Same with meat or anything else that we've considered last time. But what is it that you are absolutely not at liberty to lay aside? The moral law of God. Christian charity is moral law. You are not free to not love your brothers. Right? That is not a thing indifferent. To love the brethren is absolutely required of you. That is non-negotiable. You have no freedom to do that. And so if you understand that concept then the doctrine of the weaker brother becomes very easy to start to grasp. You are not at liberty to despise your brother. That is sin. However, you are at liberty to help them with their conscience issue because you don't have to actually partake of things indifferent. And that interaction then, really just as sort of the clarifying thought, you may even be able to leave most of the sermon behind if you have that one idea in your mind. Um, and the rest of the sermon should be easier to grab a hold of. So with that then, to introduce our time, our theme is Christian liberty in view of charity to the weaker brother. Christian liberty in view of charity to the weaker brother. And we'll divide our sermon into three headings. First is understanding the weaker brethren. Second is showing charity to the weaker brethren. And third is opposing impositions by the weaker brother, which is also our duty as well. And there, so uh, the weaker brother doesn't have power to rule the roost of the Christian church, but we'll get to that in a bit. So first, understanding the weaker brethren. Now, as we come into this chapter of Romans, it is evident that in the church at that time, there were great contentions and disputes uh, around the transition to the New Testament era. And that's where we are if you just contextually look at it. You're in a time that's a bit unsettled in the church. The canon is not fully settled uh, because it hasn't been fully written out, of course. It hasn't been fully given by the Lord to us at this time. Um, you also find that the temple is still standing. So there's this transition period. Um, and because of that, several of the Jewish Christians still kept to aspects of the Mosaic dietary laws and their feasts. Now, these ordinances had been canceled by Christ. 
Colossians 2.14 speaks of that quite remarkably. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Now those ordinances are the ceremonial ordinances uh, that we are finding disputes over here in Romans 14. Uh, The days of verse uh, verse 5, for instance, being the old Jewish ceremonial feast days. The meats of verse 2 and 15, um, you can think of, uh, there's, there's multiple aspects of this, we can get into it, but you, they certainly include the Jewish dietary laws in those meats. You know, think about the prohibition children against eating pork and shellfish in the Old Testament. Now, these laws, being ceremonial, were binding on the Jewish, the Jewish people of the Old Testament, the believers of the Old Testament. But after the cross of Christ, they were no longer binding on any believer. Right, um, But here's how we have to look at redemptive history. Between the cross and the destruction of the temple in AD 70, they became matters indifferent for that time period, which is how the apostle treats them. However, after the destruction of the temple and the completion of the canon, they became unlawful to follow. So today, celebrating those Old Testament ordinances is unlawful, The temple has gone away now, right? The priesthood is gone. Uh, We have the full canon in our possession, which was not the case at the time Paul was writing this. And what has happened in the intervening time is that the glorious liberty of the gospel has been published in every Christian church. Every Christian church has the full canon, can go and tell you exactly that it is unlawful for believers today to run back to the old ceremonies. You can read Galatians Uh, if you would like to do that. Galatians, Corinthians, Romans. These epistles are in every Bible for our edification now. But the period of transition between the Testaments was what is in view there. But today, that is over. The temple has crumbled, uh, though it was not the case in Romans 14 at the time. In fact, at the Synod of Jerusalem in Acts 15, which we'll consider later on, you find one reason the ceremonies were considered indifferent in this time. It's because as the decree was given, James said this, and this is key to take a note of, Moses of old time hath in every city them that preach him, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. Now what what he's saying about this is at the time, in virtually every religious um, uh, assembly, Moses was still being preached. And uh, the brethren were still hearing, thou shalt not eat these things, thou shalt keep these ceremonies, right? They were still being preached as though they were binding, though they were not binding at all. But this is that time of period that Acts 15 is dealing with, Paul is dealing here in Romans 14. Without the full canon of scripture, right, many Jews were still hearing that they were to observe the Mosaic ceremonial laws. And so the synod in Acts 15 determined them to be indifferent for that time of transition, but gave some rules in the use of them, which we'll consider um, in our second heading, I believe. Now, for our sermon, though those things are all very interesting things, that's a separate sermon in itself, what I would say to you is just look at the category of indifferent things in this chapter. That's what we're dealing with, even though it's unique to a particular time. We're not so interested then in talking about Jewish ceremonial laws today. What we want to do is use this chapter to understand how to deal with indifferent matters. And that's our connection to today's weaker brethren, is things indifferent. 
You know, the weaker brother of today is not a Jewish believer of the first century who did not understand their liberty from ceremonial matters, but this is a text applied to every believer that has conscience issues on indifferent things, things that are neither good nor evil. Now, you might think about uh, the imbibing of alcohol, for instance, for today's weaker brother, and we will get to that in a bit. But returning to the context, you can imagine now the explosive mixture of brethren in Rome when Paul wrote, right? Converts who had the knowledge of Christ, maybe came under the ministry or converted under the ministry of Paul, right? Who had knowledge that Christ had set them free from the ceremonies, that Christ by his work on the cross had freed them from the old Jewish laws, ceremonial laws. But then you also in the same assemblies had Jewish believers who did not know that they were relieved of the old ceremonial laws and said, in effect, hold up. Moses is still being preached and I still hear that I am to abstain from pork and shellfish. I'm still to go to the temple and observe the feast days. Yes, they lacked proper knowledge at the time, but can you imagine the contentions as these brethren mixed together in the church? That's what the apostle is dealing with. This, these disputations in verse 1 came about. Um, Him that is weak in the faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. And so the Holy Ghost moves Paul to write to the Romans, to heal the breaches between these brethren. And in the same way, we need the Holy Ghost at work in our assemblies to heal the brethren when we have such disputations today between knowledgeable brethren and the weak. Well, with that for context's sake, let's better then understand and identify the weaker brethren from this text. Now, I mentioned already that the weaker brethren see things indifferent as necessary to abstain from or to observe, or necessary to observe, like the feast days at that time. They had conscientious scruples about the use or disuse of things indifferent, uh, and that is why they are called the weaker brethren. Now, fundamentally, and this is the part we don't forget, we must not forget, though they are called weaker brethren, they are brethren. And that's the point here. They are brothers and they are sisters. They are not heretics. They are not wolves. They are brethren. These are those, the text says, put their faith in Christ. They did not look to the ceremonies for their justification, but they were looking at these ceremonies as just uh, their walk with the Lord for sanctification. They thought of the ceremonies as though they were moral law from God, like the Ten Commandments, a rule for sanctification, but not for justification. And that is an important point for why Paul urges forbearance in Romans 14. Now, that's very different from the Galatians, isn't it? Where the Galatian heresy was that these things, these ceremonies, were required for justification. And a man that espouses that or a woman that espouses that is a heretic. But these brethren said, no, uh, my conscience just says, I'm looking at my Bible and the Bible says, keep these particular feasts. I've gone to the synagogue all my life and I've been told, don't eat pork because God says it's unclean. And so these brethren aren't saying, no, pork isn't commending me to God, but I believe it is my duty before God to not eat pork. And that's what's happening with these. They're, They're not those who are seeking to be justified. They are brethren. And all throughout our text, the apostle refers to them as such. He even makes it personal for them so that they would see uh, like in 10, verse 10, 15, and 21, they are called thy brother. They're not just called brethren. They are personally your brother. 
And you are to see them that way. They are your brethren in the Lord. Most of all, he says, these are they for whom Christ died. Verse 15. So he's saying they're in error? Sure. They're weaker? Yes. But Christ died for these. And they are your brother. They are your sister. And you have no right to despise them. They are united to Christ by faith alone as you are. They're an error, but not damnable error. And so in general, I would just say beyond the doctrine, particularly of the weaker brethren, this is how you are to see all brethren in Christ, right? They are brethren. They espouse faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, faith in him alone. Maybe they're an error about this thing or that thing or the other thing, but so long as they are solely seeking to be justified by Christ and his righteousness, they are brethren. And the law of charity says you are to edify and not tear them down and not destroy them. That is what the law of charity says. That said, the problem with these brethren is that they had a conscience not fully informed of their liberty in this area. So now let's imagine ourselves in the midst of a first century congregation, right? You believe in your conscience wrongly, but you do believe in your conscience that to eat pork is a sin. It's a sin before God, even though it is a thing indifferent. But the, the pork, the eating of pork is such a strain on your conscience. You go, um, you go to a fellowship meal, maybe, and others are indulging in it. Maybe these are Gentile Christians who have learned of the liberty that we have from such laws, and they're indulging in these things, and they're inviting you to partake of these things, and they're saying, hi, brother, hi, sister, come, let's eat of this. And you're, you're seeing that this pork is before you, and they're looking at you funny, like, what is wrong with you? Don't you know you can eat this stuff now? And, but your conscience isn't persuaded of it yet. And now you're feeling that pressure, aren't you? Well, I want to join in. These are my brethren, right? And they're kind of denigrating me, and, and maybe that I need to partake of this. Well, the, the issue is now this weaker brother or sister is going to be tempted to go against their own conscience, right? Just because of your um, pressure upon them. And the problem with that, and you know, maybe the, the Gentiles, and maybe it wasn't just Gentiles, maybe it was other Jewish converts too, what the problem is, is that they were not recognizing a fundamental truth of the word of God, that whatever is not of faith is sin. And so if you tempt a person to go against what they believe in their conscience is righteous, even if it's misinformed, it is sin for them. And that's the problem, is you are causing this other brother or sister to sin against their conscience. To indulge in something you are convinced is wrong by conscience makes it evil to partake of. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for that man who eateth with offense. You know, think of it in this way as we build on the doctrine of liberty of conscience. If Christ is the Lord, you believe, right? Christ is the Lord of your conscience, and then you believe Christ has said, don't eat pork, even though you're not right on that, but you believe Christ has, by his divine law, told you not to eat pork, and then you give in to eating that pork, what have you done? You have met another man, the Lord of your conscience, and you have displaced Christ as Lord. This is why it's important that we not go against conscience, 
Because if we are Christians, we believe that our conscience is bound to Christ the Lord. And so to go against conscience is actually in your heart to go against the Lord of your conscience. And that, what, that is what makes going against conscience such a grievous sin. You're saying, I'm willing to go against Christ my Lord to partake of this thing. But Christ alone is your Lord of the conscience. So, Paul says in verse 23, He that doubteth, meaning the weaker brother, is damned or condemned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Now, those are solemn words, aren't they? Do you see why you have to take great care with your brethren's consciences? He that doubteth is damned, that is condemned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith. For if we pressure them or disregard their scruples until their conscience is settled out of the word of God, that something is truly lawful for them to use, but they're not convinced of that yet, then we are going to have them commit sin against Christ in their conscience, and that can be deadly to the soul. And that can lead to a spiral. Because what, what's happening now is you think about the effect on the soul. It starts to harden them to Christ. Now, it, it, today it's pork, right? But then it comes to the moral law. And then it comes to all kinds of other things that are not so indifferent. And so once they start to wound their conscience, once they start to go against their conscience, where does it end? You can destroy them. And this is why we want to be very careful, brethren, when we deal with others with a weak conscience. Um, Listen carefully to the apostle in verse 15. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. Right? We can, I mean, we understand that those who Christ has died for, they will ultimately not be destroyed. Some of this is rhetoric, of course, but you can cause a soul, a Christian soul, great and terrible harm when you cause them to go against conscience in one area. The floodgates open, and you don't know what sort of effect on their own soul, the despondency that comes. You know if you've ever gone against conscience yourself, perhaps in something that is moral, and you have indulged in something, you know that it can rack you with great guilt and great pain and great shame. And the apostle is asking, why are you going to do this to another brother or to another sister? even if you have liberty to indulge in these things. Do not kill him spiritually in your liberty to eat meat if that causes him to stumble. So, with that then, we have to understand actually what it means to make a brother stumble because I think we are um, not so informed on that. So we'll consider that in our next heading, showing charity to the weaker brethren. Verse 21 says, It is good neither to eat flesh, nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth, or is offended, or is made weak. Now, because we've heard that going against a weaker brother, having a weaker brother go against his or her conscience is such a terrible thing, the Apostle Paul says he is willing to lay aside his own Christian liberty and things indifferent for the sake of preserving his brother or sister. Now, when we think of the fundamental law of charity, this makes sense. Right? It makes sense, as I said in the introduction, to lay aside things indifferent for things necessary. The law of charity is something necessary to maintain the rule of Christ. It makes sense. I hope it makes sense to you. Right? 
One is indifferent, which means that, like we heard last time, you're at liberty to not use it. But one is not indifferent. You're not at liberty to despise your brother. That is why having a good doctrine in things indifferent is essential. As 1 Corinthians 8, 8 says of indifferent things, But meat commendeth us not to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worse. But would it not be for the worse to cause a weaker brother to stumble? Absolutely would be for the worse, right? Then laying aside our use of something indifferent. So in view of that, we must know what the apostle meant by offending the weaker brother, because our language of offense is not the same as the apostles here. All right. Verse 21 says this, It is good neither to eat flesh nor to drink wine nor anything whereby thy brother, and here are the three key terms which mean the same thing, thy brother stumbleth or is offended or is made weak. That's a hendiatrist probably. Now, some read that and think to offend means that anything that displeases the weaker brother is in view here. That if somebody just doesn't like the fact that, say, you drink alcohol, then I'm going to lay aside the alcohol. That's actually not what the apostle has in view here at all. In fact, Richard Baxter, and I'll quote him a little later, says something really marvelous about that. He said the key, if that were true, the key to ruling the world is just to be offended at everything. So you can control the whole world if that were the case, right? That's not the case at all. The word offense in this verse means stumbling block. The Greek word underneath it sounds like our word scandal, scandalizo. So these three terms here, stumbleth, offended, and made weak, speak of the same thing. They speak of a stumbling block that would cause our brother to be ensnared in sin. In particular, and we've heard this already, so it should make sense, to sin against their own conscience. That's what's in view here. It's not that they're offended because you might drink wine with dinner, but in terms of how we call, talk about it today, but that there is something in your behavior that is causing them to be tempted to partake of something that their conscience says is sinful. Imagine a fellowship meal, again, in the first century congregation in Rome, right? Uh, you have that same scenario I painted out, that these brethren wish to be part of the communion of saints, and they feel pressured to join in and eat the pork, though their conscience says not to. And you're there saying, hey, come and eat of this stuff, even though you know where their conscience lies, and you're, you're essentially tempting them. Uh, it's no big deal, join in. Um, and then even worse than that, right, you start to revile your brethren for not having knowledge of the liberty that they have from the ceremonial law. And you say, just eat, what's wrong with you, right? Just, you're just not right. You don't know the word of God. Well, their conscience, you have to be careful, is not yet fully persuaded. Until their conscience is fully persuaded, we are not to tempt them with these things. And so, if they did, they would be in grave sin if they partook. We talked about that and talked about how their conscience could be on fire. But that is the kind of stumbling block the apostle has in view here of causing them to go against their conscience. And so we ought to be very careful, very careful in these things. There ought to be, in matters indifferent, um, we ought never be censorious, right, of our brothers and tempt them into sinning against their conscience. Uh, listen to how Paul speaks to those who are not the weaker brother in verses 10 through 13. Why dost, dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. 
So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Let us therefore judge one another, uh, not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. So this is all what's in view here. Again, it's not that we're displeasing our brother by our actions, but rather that our actions are tempting our brother to sin. And we are not to put that kind of stumbling block before the Lord because the Lord is the Lord of their conscience. We are not. The Holy Spirit says we with knowledge should have this knowledge that we can use our knowledge of indifferent things to make a brother stumble into sin. And that's why Paul says, it is good neither to eat flesh nor to drink wine nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth or is offended or is made weak. Because this has to do with them sinning. So this understanding of what it means to make a brother stumble is quite key because an offense, a stumbling block, is to cause them to sin against conscience. Uh, again, not that they are displeased by something that you are doing. Um, you can see how the Lord Jesus uses the word offend in the same matter. You know a very famous text, Matthew 5, verse 30. If thy right hand offend thee, it's that same Greek word, cut it off and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Right, It's not talking about you're offended at the way your hand looks or something like that. Your hand is causing you to sin. That's what offend means biblically in that place, isn't it? And so that's how this text is to be understood. It's not that you displease someone, but rather you're causing them to stumble into sin. Now, here's a concrete example from my own experience that I can give to you. You know, I was out of town one Lord's Day in another congregation. The town doesn't need to be mentioned and the congregation doesn't need to be mentioned. But after the service, I was invited to the minister's house for a fellowship meal. And so was the entire congregation. Um, and when I went there, the beer, it was free-flowing. I mean, absolutely free-flowing. You would think this is a drinking party and not a fellowship meal. You know, it's not the problem wasn't that there was alcohol available, but that it was being thrust into people's faces, even by the minister. Terrible thing. Now, we can debate whether or not this is even proper to do on the Lord's Day, on Sabbath meeting. However, what is indisputably wrong is the fact that people you don't even know are having beers put into their face when you absolutely know that there are some people who have conscience issues here. And what happens is, and I didn't partake, it's not because I don't drink alcohol, but it's because it was such a sinful environment. And what is happening here is that there are those with tender and weak consciences who just to fit in with the rest of their brethren are feeling pressured that I must drink with these people. That's a terrible sin to put a stumbling block like that before a brother or sister. These things can destroy a person, brethren. You know, especially that the minister is coming up and elders are coming up and bringing beers to you. And you think, here are these men of God. And, you know, what are they going to think of me and everything else? And, and your conscience can give in to that kind of pressure. That's where the warning to us who are strong comes in. Is it worth it? to exercise your liberty in this way. 
when you know that there are weaker brethren in the church? Absolutely not. Uh, and, the, you know, again, I don't even have a problem drinking alcohol. And for me, feeling the pressure was immense. I mean, I, I don't find that drinking alcohol is a sin, rather, even though I wasn't drinking that day. Even I found it a pressure. It's like, here's my a, a colleague, a ministerial colleague, giving a beer, putting in my face. I had to say, no, I, I don't want it. These are the things that happen in the church, and don't think this is limited to first century Judea, brethren, or Rome. So, what is it that we who have knowledge are to do? Well, 1 Corinthians 8, 1, we read, Now as touching things offered unto idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. The law of charity is not to tear down and destroy those with weak consciences, but to build them up. And, and you who have knowledge on indifferent things, don't you know that things indifferent don't need to be partaken of? And he's saying, why are you not building up and edifying your brother instead of causing them to stumble? When you could willingly put aside, we talked about this last week, if you must, absolutely must partake of indifferent things, they have mastery over you. If you cannot give them up for the sake of your brother or sister. You know, there is a brutal kind of no-holds-barred Reformed Christian who thinks that he is going to teach all the uninformed brethren and do so in a way that is not edifying, hardly building up of our brethren, but instead tears them down and tempts them into sinning by wounding their conscience. But listen to Paul at the end of 1 Corinthians 8. But take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block, same concept, to them that are weak, for if any man see thee which has knowledge, eat, sit at meat in the idol's temple. Shall not the conscience of him that which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. But when ye sin so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend thing is, brethren, you sin against Christ when you cause your brother or sister who is weak to stumble. And so the apostle says, in effect, God forbid, I will not eat meat if it causes my brother to stumble into this kind of sin. You know, because I love, first of all, Christ that much. Uh, my sin is against Christ who died for this brother or sister. Right? And that's where the apostle's heart is in these things. This is where the law of charity has its root. I, it is non-negotiable to sin against Christ. And that's what we don't understand. You know, you can imagine, right, in a place like I had described on the Lord's Day or this imaginary or um, imagined fellowship meal, how many will have to answer to Christ for wounding the weaker brother's conscience? Terrible thing. Now, boys and girls, uh, regardless of the doctrine of the weaker brother, I want to address you for a moment. Consider your own commitment to Christ as Lord of the conscience. Right, there's something here, I think, that is worth noting of. You will fi uh, face things like peer pressure, won't you? Which is really the fear of man. The fear of man. What the fear of man does is it tempts you to lay aside Christ's kingship over your conscience to do what, is, uh, what another man or woman wants you to do. 
right? And that is called the fear of men. And so what you understand here is that you are grievously sinning against God when you sin against conscience and you do thing for, things for the sake of another person. You know, if a friend says, um, you know, and on, on the other side, right? A friend, well, let's look at both sides of the issue. On one hand, you will have friends who say, come on, join with us. You know, there's like 15 of your friends and they want to go and do something, maybe just one friend. And they say, come on, do this thing with us. And you're saying, no, I know that the word of God says this is wrong, but you're tempted, aren't you, to give in. And you're tempted to go and do this thing. You're going against conscience, which is neither right nor safe, children. And your conscience can be wounded and you're going against Christ himself. So don't do that. But I think I have to warn you on the other hand too. Don't you ever go against somebody who says, I don't think it's right to do this thing or that thing or the other thing. Right? Don't you tempt them to do something that they in their conscience believes is wrong. That's another way you use this doctrine too. You remember whatever is not of faith is sin. Don't press them and don't be a stumbling block. I think that's a practical use. Well, lastly, let's consider opposing impositions by the weaker brethren. Uh, so let us be warned of something that I began to speak of but didn't consider. We have considered the law of charity towards the weaker brethren, but you need to be aware and beware that there is a, a kind of person who has the form and guise of the weaker brother, but is in fact a legalist. A legalist who wants extra biblical rules to bind the church of Jesus Christ. Now these go beyond those who have tender consciences in their walk with the Lord. Instead, these want to impose upon the church extra biblical rules upon the consciences of Christians everywhere. And these are to be opposed by good-hearted Christians. It's not the rule of charity to indulge a legalist in legalism. In fact, the rule of charity would teach us to oppose them, for they are seeking to bind consciences that are bound to the word of God and to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Paul opposed vociferously the circumcision party in Galatia. You read it in Galatians 5.12 a few weeks ago. He opposed such men with these words, I would they were even cut off, which trouble you. Right, such are to be opposed. As an example, right, well, we've been using alcohol, I think it's pertinent, uh, because our nation and the church in this nation has, has wrestled with it since the temperance movement. But you remember, or you might have heard, there are some Christians who will, who will lay down this law Christians do not drink. That's not the weaker brother. That's the legalist. And we have to be aware of that. You know, they begin to enforce that rule. What do they do if you do drink? They start to doubt your profession of faith. Oh, you drink? A Christian doesn't drink, right? So they're not the weaker brother at that point. They have become the rank legalist. They have become the Pharisee. And that is to be opposed. You know, on that note, uh, R.C. Sproul once noted he had gone out with some brethren, I think maybe after a Bible study or something like that, to a restaurant. And so goes to the restaurant and the waitress asks, or the server asks, if they would like to have a drink with their meal. And before he could say anything, I, I don't think he was intending to buy a, uh, an alcoholic beverage, uh, a woman said, oh no, we're Christians. We don't drink. Right? That's not the weaker brother. Now, that's somebody who has essentially defined Christianity by extra-biblical rules, right? They have even tank, uh, tinkered with the gospel itself. 
such that this witness to an unbeliever now is what? That in order to be a Christian, you have to give up alcohol. Right? That is legalism. And that is not the weaker brother who is wrestling with their own conscience. That is false witness to Christianity. I think R.C. Sproul said that he was embarrassed that he didn't speak up at that time later on. Because we ought to speak up. Because this misrepresents the gospel. It misrepresents Christ. It misrepresents the word of God. That is a violation at least of the third and ninth commandments, if nothing else. It's a violation of Christ's kingly rule, his power to legislate law and him only. And so we have to oppose for the sake of the king those who would bind consciences in the church. And the next thing that happens is when such brethren are put into church office, they begin to legislate these things into the church. And that's where it really becomes a danger. Uh, Their legalism is taught as binding as though it is part of God's moral law. And that's how abstinence from things indifferent like alcohol becomes legislated in the church and then consciences are bound and alcohol is no longer seen as something indifferent but something necessary to abstain from uh, to commend yourself to God. That's where the danger is in all these things. That's not a power the church has. And I, I alluded to Baxter's quote. I thought it was so good. He speaks of the heart of such men and women. They think that no man must do anything which grieveth or displeaseth them, lest he be guilty of scandal. And by this trick, I love that, whoever can purchase impatience and peevishness enough to always uh, be displeased with the actions of others shall rule the world. It's It's a wonderful truth though, isn't it? that if this is the doctrine of the weaker brother, then all you have to do is be displeased with everything and everybody will have to kowtow to you. That kind of behavior cannot be tolerated as rank legalism. To cluck the tongue at everyone who does not do what you believe is right, yet you cannot point to the scripture, all of scripture to prove it. You're seeking to rule over and assert yourself over your brethren. These are to be opposed. And when it comes to church power, What the church has power to do is minister what the word says is sin and not sin and not extra biblical rules. You know, we must stand fast when impositions come over the church of Christ by legalists. They often wear the sheepskin of the weaker brother. Now, I'll have to probably consider this in more detail in an upcoming sermon, but I want to introduce this because maybe some of you are thinking, because I've already mentioned the text before, what in the world do we do with Acts 15 then? Right? You turn to Acts 15. Let's see how far I can get. And turn to verse um, 19. As we think on the decree of the Synod of Jerusalem. As you turn there, the papists use this very text to say they have power to legislate new laws and prohibitions. Even Protestant denominations, I have known a Presbyterian denomination that has used Acts 15 to justify their requirements, members not drink alcohol, because they say the assembly in Jerusalem forbade things indifferent. So surely they say we can prohibit drinking alcohol. So here, Acts 15, 19 through 21, James passes the sentence. My sentence is that we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turned to God, but that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols and from fornication and from things strangled, and from blood, 
For Moses of old time hath in every city them that preach him, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. And I'm going to leave it there. Now you can probably remember that several of the things here are moral. Some of the things here are moral and some are ceremonial prohibitions, right? Uh, The seventh commandment, a moral law, is found in abstaining from fornication. So in that case, they're not legislating. They're just reminding us what the word of God already says. It says, for the state of the church today with all these Gentile converts where fornication is absolutely rampant, we are reminding the church to abstain from fornication. But what about things strangled and from blood? You know, these are ceremonial laws, aren't they? And they had become, as we had heard, things indifferent at the time. Yet the Council of Jerusalem seems to have made it a rule to abstain from them. And this is where the question is on what power church has in things indifferent, whether they can legislate whatever they would like. Well, I treated with you verse 21 earlier, so I think you understand where we're going with this. This was a temporary measure while Moses was read everywhere. Right? Almost every commentator understands that this decree does not bind us today, obviously. Right? Um, there are some who love their blood sausage and blood pudding, obviously, who are glad for that. But the decree was given when a certain circumstance was troubling the church. So that has to be remembered. Second, because of the stumbling block to Jewish Christians with the freedom Gentile Christians were exercising uh, in indifferent things, the council told them at least publicly, and this is what most people believe, this is a public prohibition, to abstain from the exercise of it while they were so grievously wounded in conscience. So here's where our understanding of the law of charity and things indifferent comes in order, right? To maintain the divine law of charity, to keep brethren from stumbling, this is a temporary order given so that the church might be strengthened as the word of God would be fully preached until the word of God would be fully preached in the land and brethren had consciences conformed to the word of God. Calvin points this out in the Institutes. The reservation which immediately follows is not a new law enacted by the apostles, and this is such a key, but a divine and eternal command of God against the violation of charity, which does not detract one iota from that liberty. It only reminds the Gentiles how they are to accommodate themselves to their brother and to not abuse their liberty for an occasion of offense. In this, what is helpful about Calvin's comments is that it was an application of a law already on the books, the law of charity. And it was an application, not a new time, right? It was not a new law, rather, but what the synod was doing is applying that law to the circumstances. Um, You know, there may be some limited application of this idea in places like the mission field today, right? Where you might say, okay, you need to lay aside some liberty that we have temporarily because of who we're trying to reach. And so a council can give that kind of thing, but it's always in view of the law of charity. And it's always in view of stumbling blocks that would cause those to sin against conscience, not because it displeases somebody, not because we think it would be good to make a blanket prohibition on something indifferent, But because for the settling of the church and the maintenance of charity and to keep brethren from wounding their consciences, perhaps something like this can be done. A temporary order, but it is not 
carte blanche power that synods and councils have to legislate. You also know it was a temporary order because the decree was also to abstain from things polluted by idols. Yet Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, a few years later after this council that we read last week, that the, such meat could be eaten. So this is not a moral prohibition, but a circumstantial one. This is a way to keep brethren from stumbling. So you put 1 Corinthians 10 with Acts 15, and you can see that privately Christians are able to exercise this liberty, but the decree is understood as a way to keep brethren from stumbling into sin uh, via public exercises of liberty for a certain time in things indifferent. Well, we'll have to speak more on the power of the church when we consider the liberty of the church in upcoming sermons, but I did think it was important to understand Acts 15 as inevitably somebody's going to bring it up when it comes to the power of the church. Now, at the end of the day, then, let's just wrap with this. The common theme in all these points is found in Romans 14, 19. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify another. Even Acts 15 shows us that that rule in Romans 14, 19 trumps our use of things indifferent. That is a fundamental law from King Jesus that even transcends the doctrine of the weaker brother, does it not? It goes beyond the weaker brother brother, um, doctrine to how we treat all brethren. We ought to seek after what edifies one another, not what tears each other down. We are not at war with one another in the body of Christ, in other words. Our first goal, even in controversy, is to seek to edify and build up our brethren, to build them up. And let us remember that as we exercise our liberty, especially in things adiaphora. However, I would be very remiss if I did not address the unbeliever in our midst here tonight. I want to read verses 10 through 12 one last time. But why dost thou judge thy brother, or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Now, every single one of you will have to give an account of yourself to God. Now, if you're an unbeliever, every blasphemy, every hateful thought, every lie, everything that is against God's law, you will have to give an account for Now, the beauty of this text, of course, is that for the Christian, they say, well, I will have an advocate who will speak on my behalf, Jesus Christ. He will give an account. And he said, that blasphemy, that sin, that hate, that lust, even that fornication, I have paid for, I have died for, they are all on my account. But the unbeliever has no advocate. And so they will have to give an answer to God. And if that is you, unbeliever, That's a dreadful, dreadful thought. You you hear here, as I live, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. You know, you will either do that cheerfully as the believer or you will do that with great pain, with gritted teeth. But you will admit that Christ is Lord as he banishes you to hell. And so you are to come to the Lord Jesus Christ for mercy. Mercy he gives to the chief of sinner if they will come to him in faith. Bow down before the Lord. Take Christ and you will be saved forever. And for those of us who are in Christ, what a thing it is to know that he is our king and he is our advocate as well. Let us treat our brethren in the same way.
Amen. May God bless this word to us. Let us arise for prayer, if able. O gracious God, forgive us for we have not loved as Christ has loved us. Help us to love our brethren, whether they be weak or strong, remembering that Christ is King and Lord of all. Help us to never put a stumbling block or offense before our brother. Help us to never cause one to wound their conscience and go against conscience. Uh, We pray, Lord, that we would not be the occasion of the destruction of the conscience of another believer. Help us be tender to one another. Help us to edify each other. Lord, we confess we are not often brethren of that sort, so forgive us and give us the grace to do what thou hast commanded. O Lord, we're thankful to know these things out of the word of God, but help conform us to the word. We pray and ask that these things would be in our mind and hearts as we walk with our brethren in charity throughout the week and into eternity. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.